event room where respiratory therapists can come and get a little inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry. All right, everybody. Welcome to the first Vent Room podcast of 2021. We are going to have a better year than we did last year. And I think that there's always these trajectories where we're working towards something and things happen or something happens and we get redirected. And today I am talking to Dr. Benjamin Wang and He's going to tell his story about kind of going from being the choice of medical doctor to medical entrepreneur and how when you see a problem, you, you go seek solutions. And thank you for joining us today, Benjamin, on The Vent Room. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Tabitha. So I know that you are working with, your passion is basically becoming a a superhero of ventilator associated ammonia, right? Trying to eradicate it from the world. And here's the thing, respiratory therapists are working with these patients and it becomes a complication. Hospitals are not getting paid for ventilator associated pneumonia. So now the return on investment and the focus on prevention is very, it's in the spotlight. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of like how you ended up as this medical entrepreneur with Aspire subglottic endotracheal tube? So um, back in 2012, I was at the University of Miami. I was a, um, um, a lowly clinician, you know, doing my rotations through the, the ICU and you know, anesthesia, and I was basically trying to become a uh, critical care um, anesthesiologist, um, you know, because it, it, it was always my life passion to really kind of help people and, and figure out, you know, a way where I could see them really improving due to my actions. And the interesting thing is one day, a 19-year-old postpartum young lady came in into the ICU under my care. And Fortunately, she was put on a, um, a ventilator because of hemodynamic instability. She had some complications, but otherwise she was otherwise healthy. 19-year-old, you know, could, could have been somebody you could see in a coffee shop or walking down the street, just, just a regular person. And um, under, under my team's care, we, we, we were watching her and planning to wean her off the ventilator. We were working very closely with respiratory care. And unfortunately, she caught a really nasty bacteria, antimicrobial, antibiotic resistant pneumonia, and she passed away. And, you know, in the hospital, you often see people pass away, unfortunately, but, you know, you really hope that you don't see somebody who would otherwise be healthy and has so much life to live, have to, to have these kind of tragedies happen. And, and so... Something went off in me at that point because, you know, as, as clinicians, we have to confront the family. We have to tell them what happened. And I didn't have a good reason of why it happened. It just happened. And we had to accept it. And I thought that was wrong. <laughs> I thought that was wrong. I didn't want these things to happen. So my team tasked me with going into the medical literature and trying to find out if there was something I could have done or something we could have done to kind of improve the situation and make sure that these things don't happen. 
you know, kind of a reflective period of time. It's something clinicians do. Right. Those mortality, morbidity reports like that's that people are, are looking at to see, you know, could we do something better? What lesson can we learn? How do we provide better care to patients? Because we get into healthcare to help people. And if you do see that healthy 19 year old with complications, it it, it hurts, right? You know, it's much easier to when we're dealing with older population, where you know, they've lived a good life and, and those types of things. But Every patient deserves the best care we can provide. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so the interesting thing is when I was looking through the literature, I ran into this paper. <laughs> it showed me that not only was the breathing tube, the nidus and the reason for infection, it showed me that the breathing tubes that we were using were getting blocked all the time. And when I talked to respiratory care practitioners, they knew the problem better than we did. All the doctors, we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> we thought we were following the, the literature and the guidelines and we're using the best we, thing we could. And we were right. We were trying to use the best thing, but the best thing wasn't the best thing for the patient. Because these suction breathing tubes that are still on the market today and, and being used today in, in the fight against COVID, I mean, they were designed by an engineer who had no experience with how the human body works. You see, like this paper basically proved that the devices we were using were, were failing within a couple of minutes. And, and I, I looked at this and I was like, here it is. This is a smoking gun. Somebody has already done the research and figured out what the problem is. The problem is we don't have better breathing tubes. The breathing tubes that we do have, that we have and are using aren't, doing the job that we need them to do. They aren't, they aren't removing the bacteria and the pathogens that cause these bacterial pneumonias in these patients. So for the listeners that are on the podcast, what I want to, I'm going to read you the little marking here. And basically the pressures of the wall suction regulator with the sputum trap dysfunction, the decrease of the negative pressure started at a medium time of six minutes. So basically it's saying if you're using these subglottic standard tubes that they're failing within six minutes. Yes. Which Um, is quick. (laughs) I I don't know of very many intubated ventilated patients that are um, only need six minutes of protection. I really don't. (laughs) I dare somebody to tell me there are uh, any appreciable number. We need things that basically work for a longer period of time. Right. Um, I looked at this and I, 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 I said, you know, this is a plastic tube. There's no magic here. Somebody just needs to care enough to do something about it, to create a better device. And millions of patients are going to benefit from it. You know, costs be damned, economics be damned, business be damned. These are going to be millions of people patients who are going to benefit from that. And, and for me, at that point, a light bulb went off and I said, you know, I have to do something about this. I, I have the smoking gun. I have an emotional reason to do this. <laughs> passion. So, it makes it a passion project. There's totally, passion projects are totally different than just, you know, those assignments that you have to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I looked at this and I said, you know, I don't know how to do this. (laughs) 
I don't know the first steps on how to do this. I don't know what it takes to bring a device to market, but I'm going to find out. I'm going to dedicate myself to figuring this out. And a couple, you know, painful years later and a lot of work later, I, you we know, with the, the we, goal uh, in mind is to make something that I think ventilation is uh, making an impact of where they are and who they now are during the how long they are. I found it a company be, called NEVAP and not be based on something that is so never and we ventilated in such a high number. If you think about it, also, it's, it's very interesting and logical that if you have a vacuum that is getting stuck all the time, what the vacuum cleaner companies do, they, they put an attachment. You know, they don't just like tell you to use the single nozzle and go and vacuum your carpet. They, they tell you, hook up the attachment, and then the attachment will facilitate better performance. And it makes perfect sense. So that's basically what we did. Did. We basically created a breathing tube with a little tissue blocker, created a multi-port apparatus. So now there's a little space for the suction to occur. It doesn't suck onto the airway tissue. And what we found is the device works 10, 15 times better than, than the gold standard at this point. Cost effective because we know the other devices do some very important things. They reduce time on the vent. They reduce mortality. They reduce the medications and antibiotics that we use. They reduce the incidence of pneumonias. Better suctioning can only make not only these benefits more augmented, but they can also improve workflow because I know that these devices are universally hated by nurses and respiratory care practitioners everywhere <laughs> because they block and Guess whose job it ends up being to un unblock them and make sure that they're working and flush and all that stuff that we really wish we could just not have to do and we could focus on more important things. But we basically created one that, that suctions better and as a consequence doesn't allow the material to leak and cause these pneumonias in, in patients. And we're really proud of it. It's FDA cleared CE marked and being used at UCSF and USC right now for COVID patients. Oh, that's great. It's definitely something that's interesting. And, you know, looking at better success for our patients, it's, that's what we're, we're, we're here for. We're here to provide the best care possible and tools need to advance, right? So the subglottic suction, great idea. And now, you know, we're, you're on a process of making it better for people. So I think that that's, that's a key thing. What have been like, I guess this getting stuff FDA approved isn't easy. And I'm actually, we're going to have another guest on with another new device that's coming out and they are in the final stages of FDA approval and bringing a product to market. And I think really you, you highlighted something important, whether you're a respiratory therapist, an MD, a nurse, if you see a problem and it's repeated, then start brainstorming for the opportunity to create something and turn into that medical entrepreneur. Yes. Yes. You know, and the impetus to do these things now is enormous because I'll tell you what's happening. In, in the rest of the world outside of healthcare, everybody is looking at healthcare as this place where they can come in and change. And it's a great, it's a great place that needs a lot of changing. But I am, I am a proponent that I think you need real experts in there 
to change it in the right way. Because, I mean, when we let other people innovate for us, we get an electronic health record system that is focused on billing. You know what I mean? We get insurance websites that are designed to sell insurance to people. We get drug prices and drug pricing tiers that are basically designed to extract every single penny from, from patients. We don't get the things that make a meaningful change in healthcare because that's not their focus. You know, that's not the focus of most of the innovators out there. They just simply do not understand the problems that clinicians deal with them day to day. So there's never been a, a more urgent or better environment for clinicians to take a step away from clinical practice to say, you know what, we ha- are in a unique position to make a big difference. And just as I highlighted, I happen to be a physician who saw a respiratory anesthesia problem. This could have easily been a, a respiratory therapist or a respiratory care practitioner could have looked at this and said, you know, I don't want to deal with this stuff anymore. I want to make it better. It's hard, but this was a problem that, I mean, they were seeing day in and day out. And they, many people, they still are seeing these problems. So you know, I urge everybody to really look at their clinical practice, look at some aspect of, of their day-to-day operations or day-to-day struggles and, and just say, why, why does this have to be the case? Why can't there be something different? Why can't we move medicine in the right direction? And what you'll find is your knowledge and clinical experience makes you very unique as an entrepreneur. Working in the field you see the problems. And I think that that's where you see that repeated problem that is the issue is where you have that opportunity to be like, okay, how could I solve this? And it could turn into a business or how do you partner with a medical device company to advance that particular item? So I think it's very important that people are not just like, oh yeah, I run across this and they kind of just keep on going. It's like, I run across this all the time. How can I, as a a clinician and maybe make it an entrepreneurial aspect and not being afraid of that? I don't know how to do this, but I have an idea and I'll do it in the end. I'll tell you the truth is fear is something clinicians are having to deal with right now on the front lines. We deal with it at a level that, I mean, many of us wouldn't, we're never signed up for this kind of fear. Most people, they would be, they would become paralyzed if they walked into the hospital full of COVID patients. You know, we have a country full of clinicians today that will go to work every day dealing with a fear that most people will never know. So I know the bravery and the push and the passion is there. It, it, it is, it is unfathomable how much we could be doing. So you have this idea, mm-hmm. you've you have this passion for it, right? Because you you have this patient that you're just kind of like, you know what, your death is not going to go in vain. You have kicked me in the pants to do something special. What were some of the challenges? How do you get funding to get to a point where you're actually bringing a product to market? It's interesting. You kind of have to shed a lot of the preconceptions of what you think an entrepreneur is. I mean, we open the magazine or we open open a, um, a news story and there's all these stories about these people who just kind of 
raised $2 million or $5 million. All of a sudden, they just walked into a VC firm and somebody handed them a check and then they were off. And, and the truth is, that's not at all how it works. <laughs> that is not at, how, at all. Being an entrepreneur is about tapping into the network and the resources that you have. And, and if you don't have enough of those resources, you have to go out and get it. There's no shortage of resources out there and people that can help you. The limiting factor is you know, how willing and how much you're willing to go out there and get those resources. If you have a passion, what's interesting is people love passion. You know, you go on a, on a stage, you talk to other people and they can hear it in your voice. And because nobody else will ever believe in you more than yourself. If it rings true, you'll, you'll attract other people that want to help you simply because they, they feel that, that, that push inside of you and they, they're, they're envious or they're very proud of it. I've met all kinds of people simply because I was willing to open my mouth and say, hey, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing here. I think, um, you know, if you know anybody that can help me, please, you know, let me know. And I'm more than happy to return the favor should the opportunity arise. And I think just in general, like whether you're, you're looking for a job or you're looking for an opportunity, just telling people that you're doing it. And as they talk with their network or someone mentions something, they can be like, oh, hey, I'm, you know, I know somebody who's who's doing this and maybe you could pair up, you know? So I think that that's, that's something that um, just in life, just saying, Hey, I'm looking for this or I'm doing this and just letting other people know is a way of getting out there. So for your project, how much did you build up to, to, to get this at this point? Yeah. I always tell other entrepreneurs, take baby steps until you have to make the leap. There's a lot that you could be doing outside of what you are doing now that doesn't require you to quit your job or jump on a boat and go to go overseas or anything before you have to basically commit. For instance, for me, it was taking medical device development classes. It's a great program here in uh, uh, at UC Santa Cruz here in California that offered medical device design control and quality systems and regulatory pathways for medical devices. And I said, you know what? It's worth me spending two nights out of the week to go to these classes, listen to somebody ask questions, read a book about it, and basically learn a new skill and enter a new world. Because if it's really something you want to do, you can you can move towards that direction long before you have to approach an investor and say, I'm going to quit my job if you could do some, if you write me a check so I can do this. No. And I think that that's interesting. Cause like you just taught me something. I didn't know that they were courses like that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You don't have to hire somebody to, <laughs> to learn about it really. You know, there's lots of people out there that have been nice enough to share their expertise with um with books and everything. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if you're very motivated if you could go to a library and borrow some materials, really. So part of your process was to educate yourself on the process, right? Because it, it's kind of, it's that unknown. You have to educate yourself on the unknown. And at what point you're working, you're educating yourself for this next phase. 
I guess, what was that trigger point? Because like you said, can a passion project is a passion project, but there's sometimes that point where you have to uh, pull the trigger and say, okay, this passion project is now my, my job. How did you decide that that was the, the time? I'll, I'll be honest with you. Once I got it into my mind that I needed to do this, that I wanted to do this, it wasn't a matter of like whether or not I would do it. It was a matter of when. And, and the, the, when, the when came when I couldn't do any more of this kind of education stuff by myself. That it was turning like I we had enough material, had enough background that there was a step that said, I just need to find somebody to make the first couple of tools. And at that point, it was either take the leap or, or just shelve it. And I said, you know, another big thing about being a clinician is mo- many of us have good paying jobs. It's really hard to leave a good paying job. <laughs> because if you, if you have a certain lifestyle, you have a family, you have a mortgage, it's really hard to say, hey, I'm going to put all of these things aside. Wait for me a couple of years. I'm going to go do this other thing. It's almost impossible. So, you know, I looked at I looked at my life carefully. I looked at the life decisions I'd made. I I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. Didn't have a lot of bills at that point. And I said, you know what? If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now. If I wait until I'm completely happy with the situation, I'm never. And and in the back of my mind, I you have to. If you want this, you just have to have to make it happen now. So, I mean, it's, it's a different, it's a per, it's such a personal decision for entrepreneurs. It boils down to so many factors. And I wish there was somebody with an algorithm who could tell me this is the time, but it all comes down to what you feel. Yeah, it, it is trying to figure out what, what works, but I think definitely that seeing like your success, right? You, you brought a product to market. It's FDA approved. It goes from this light bulb idea to a reality. Like it's kind of like your baby, right? (laughs) Um, And, and seeing that success. So for, for let's say respiratory therapists that are interested in checking your product out or getting a sample in their hands to, to trial, what's the process for that? Well, they can, they can either contact me directly through our website, www.nevap.co, or uh, depending on where, where in the country they are, we have a national distributor called Sean Anesthesia. And if they go down to their purchasing department and say, hey, I really want a sample, they can, contact, they can ask purchasing to contact Sean Anesthesia for a free sample of our device. It's a drop-in solution that can be helping them with their patients, not only clinically, but also with their workflow. So I urge everybody to give it a chance and try, try it out. A lot, many, there's going to be resistance. I've seen it before. (laughs) Well, no one likes change. (laughs) No one likes change, but sometimes if you're, you're seeing a lot of problems might be good to consider. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I really appreciate your time today. I think it was great just to see that there's opportunities for clinicians in general in different areas. And if you end up with something passionate, you can focus on it and it can be a success. It's just getting it out there and learning about different things. And for clinicians, hey, 
what does it hurt to try something new if there's even a small percentage that it's going to improve your workflow? I've worked in pediatrics mostly. Is there is there, what's the size tubes that this is working on? Cause I know like a lot, like subglottic suction wasn't in my world because I worked with peds. Yeah. So what size tubes does this, is this on? It, it, we have all sizes from 6.0 to 9.0. So 6.0, 6.5, seven and a half, that kind yeah. of thing. Fortunately, there has never been a guidelines for the use of these devices in pediatric patients. And we are trying to figure out a way so that we can establish that there might be some some uh, interesting places where it could be used in pediatrics. Pediatrics is still the same realm where they're not paying for VAP. If they they get it, I'll I'll say, working in peds, they can be juicy. Yep. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the you're just kind of like. You feel like you're you know you could put the suction catheter down there the whole time and just put it on continuous and. And it would still never stop. So occasionally you have those like hyper secretion, hyper items. So, but no, I think that that's great. If you guys are interested, I'm going to put the, uh, the papers, the websites and items in the show notes so that if you're interested, you can take a look. It's a new product. So I'm assuming that eventually there's going to be more research in your, in your world. On that, so it, it, it's definitely something that's cool. I would like I teach, so maybe we can get some samples for the students, oh, just to to see something different because it, it's great to see innovation. And with COVID per se, I've never seen so many people on a race to the most least expensive ventilator. I know that there was some really great work out of out of Austin. Tesla was on board building vents, just kind of different things. So it, it is true though, clinicians understand the problems of other clinicians and, and innovating within our own industry and bringing each other up and saying, hey, this is a possible solution. I understand your workflow. I'm going to say my favorite clinical shoe mm-hmm. was designed by an ICU nurse. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll see about putting the link to that in the, the show notes as well. It's like CNC Sweden or, or something like that. And, and her problem, she's like, I work 12 hour shifts. I'm standing all the time. My feet hurt all the time. And she went and met with people in Sweden that are like famous for shoemaking and created some really great items. And I happened to run into them when I was uh, visiting a hospital to visit students during clinicals. And I put it on and I'm like, oh, this is nice. And she's like, yeah, it's, I'm an ICU nurse and this is my design. And I worked with professional shoemakers to, to create something that worked really well. And I, up until recently, I was, I've been clinical this whole time and I was still working 12 hour shifts up until a few months ago. And, you know, they were my favorite thing. I, felt really nice at the end of the day. I didn't have the same pains as I did with some other products. So it's definitely interesting that the problem can be almost anything from subglottic tubes 
let's say getting clogged a lot to I work in a healthcare and my feet hurt at the end of the day. It's what is the problem that you identify that maybe your inspiration can solve? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, thank you very much. Hey guys, check it out. It doesn't hurt. And hopefully there'll be some more research. Absolutely. The research is uh, just starting to come out and it's in, in COVID patients and it's, it's pretty compelling. So, I mean, look for these cases of VAP and, and know that there is a better solution out there.